Jonathan Mais is a Dutch sociologist who earned his PhD at Harvard University and is currently teaching at Boston University. His research describes the beliefs people hold about economic inequality, its causes, and political consequences. It especially highlights the process through which citizens, especially young ones, learn about inequality and come to make sense of poverty and wealth. His works have been featured in The Guardian, The Washington Post, Financial Times, Harvard Business Review, The Independent, and a myriad of scientific journals. Dr. Mais, welcome to Eurotrash. Thanks very much for having me. Keeping up with the spirit of the podcast, Professor Mais, you were so nice to put on a football jersey as well. So I have to ask you about that uh, first and foremost. Yeah, well, I mean, I take every opportunity I can. This is the uh, the Ajax, uh, which is my hometown uh, Amsterdam-based football club. Um, the jersey that, that they wore, well, a replica, of course, in the 1995-96 uh, final of the Champions League, which they won. Uh, and I think one of my favorite players' names is on the back. That's Yari Liedmann, a, a truly legendary Finnish um, um, advanced playmaker, number 10, uh, that played for Ajax. Yeah, so uh, so this is a great opportunity to show off some of my 90s uh, relics. Um, my pleasure. I'm super into basketball, so I don't know about I don't know much about <laughs> Champions League, but uh, what's happening with Ajax these days? Oh, um, are they still like a, a top competitor? I mean, they're they're very much outside of the top. The top is completely dominated by um, oil, money infused, um, um, you know, teams that that spend <laughs> literally billions of of dollars or euros on on fees. Ajax can never compete with that, but they are doing very smart business. They're they're still um, focused on. On training and um, and bringing sort of through the through the youth academy, um, really talented players um, that work with the Ajax model, which is very much renowned tactically and everything. Uh, so yeah, there was an outsider, but they they've been pulling off some good runs. Uh, they were in the semi-final of the Champions League, which is the the most sort of prestigious European competition, just a few years ago. Um, and uh, did, did fairly well last year as well. So I have I have some hope that that we will regain a sense of glory that that I grew up with in the nineties. Leaving football aside for a moment, let's mm. start with the with the classic question: How did you become interested in, in inequality? And is there perhaps a personal anecdote or an observation from your youth that informs your research? Yeah, I mean to some extent. I mean I led a pretty sheltered and privileged life as. Um, you know, white boy in fairly middle class sort of family. Um, yeah, we, I think what would really fueled my interest in these kind of topics at an early age, um, although I only began to really pursue it in college, um, was this sort of experience of living in a neighborhood that was um, particularly ethnically, but also socioeconomically uh, quite diverse. Um, I think a majority of kids that I would play with uh, on the street squares or in the park, uh, but mostly on the on on squares, the, the the sort of infrastructure of that part of Amsterdam really facilitated people, kids just sort of spending the whole day outside and playing with other kids. Most of those kids had a um, Moroccan or Turkish or um, Dutch Italian background, and I was often like the sort of only white kid, and that was absolutely normal and um, familiar to me. But then when I went to um, 
uh, to primary school, I found myself in a very different context that was predominantly white um, or some of the other kids lived in like massive mansions on the canals. And and I started realizing just how much um, difference um, um, I think I perceived it as difference at first and only later did I realize or come up sort of link it to the term of inequality, right? But how much difference there was. Um, so I think that sort of that, and then of course, you know, playing football and other things, I, I, I was in a very different context. So that sort of having an exposure to different contexts and to, um, you know, people's privileges and disadvantages, et cetera, from an early age, I think it, it sort of planted the seed perhaps for me to be interested in this topic, even though I didn't have like a, a, a firsthand personal experience of being on the on the wrong side of uh, of these kind of divides. I was always in a fairly privileged position, but at least I had that sort of awareness, I think, or sensitivity, um, um, yeah, through my childhood. These days you mostly teach in the United States, right? Yeah, yeah, I, um, yeah I'm teaching at Boston University this last year. Um, and during my graduate studies at Harvard, I taught for four or five years. Yeah. I'm asking because I also wanted to ask what was your impression of the inequality of the, you know, in the United States when you first went over there? Yeah. Well, I mean, okay. So my first experience in the U.S. as a student was um, at Berkeley, another very uh, elite university, although it's a public university. So that's a different character. Um what was really stark there is I lived in San Francisco at first and later I lived in the town of Berkeley. But in both places, um, there was this completely kind of uncanny experience of going to one of the most prestigious and wealthy, really, places um, and and encountering homelessness, for instance, in, in, in such a great number, um, such a pressing problem that, you know, you literally had to kind of step over people sleeping on the street uh, to get to uh, the, you know, ivory tower of academia. And that was extremely confrontational. We always had, certainly my childhood in Amsterdam, there was lots of drug dealers and prostitution and, and, and homelessness and, and lots of petty crime, actually. I think we had maybe five burglaries in our home over the years. Um, so, you know, there was that. But uh, the scale of this kind of um, inequality and, and the extent of the sort of discrepancy was particularly astonishing uh, in California. And when I later had the chance to, that was just a visiting sort of situation, later when I had the chance to look for a graduate school to, um, to really, uh, you know, uh, commit to my PhD studies, I had a choice of a couple of different places and some of them uh, really only had sort of that ivory tower aspect of it. And that was really off-putting to me because the idea of being a sociologist and studying the world from such a um, bubble seemed sort of antithetical to the whole enterprise. Um, so what I liked about Harvard is that it's, it's in Boston, which is a very uh, socioeconomically diverse place. Um, and one of my first encounters actually visiting um, the university and, and, and figuring out if, if that's where I wanted to do my, my, my grad studies was, um, yeah, just, just again, being confronted with homelessness, being confronted with crime, 
and realizing like, all right, at least this is a real city. Uh, I can do some proper <laughs> sociological research here and I won't be completely secluded from all of the social problems that I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to, to study and better understand. Uh, so that made it a, kind of made it feel like the right place for me to, uh, to be. I completely understand that sentiment. I live in Berlin now and it's an extremely, parts of it are an extremely trashy place. And those are the parts that are the most interesting. And those are the parts that uh, like, especially young people want to move into also because yeah. they're cheaper, obviously, but also because they attract these kind of people and culture and, and the arts and so forth. Unfortunately, yeah. that also brings gentrification. Now, just before the interview, I had a look at the global wealth inequality index for 2022 and the Netherlands sit somewhere at the bottom of the list, I think as the 14th least unequal country. I live in Germany, uh, yeah. which is doing pretty good. But coincidentally, my home country of Slovenia <clears throat> is the least unequal country in the world, which I have to confess fills me with a, a little bit of a pride there. I'm not going to lie. But having just glanced at this list really quickly, it seems that the countries that are doing the best uh, in this regard are, are either strong social democracies like the Netherlands or countries that have a little bit of a socialist past like Slovenia. Uh, would you say that's a fair assessment or did I miss something crucial? Yeah, um, well, there's a really important nuance here. And that's um, you mentioned wealth. But I think what you're what you're relaying is actually based on income inequality. And the two are really distinct dimensions. So, um, yeah, I was familiar with Slovenia having a lot of income, a, a very low level of income inequality. But one of its neighboring countries, well, actually one country removed, well, one of the countries it shared um, the Republic of Yugoslavia with but Serbia mm -hmm. is actually one of the most unequal uh, countries in Europe, income-wise. So um, uh, it's far too easy to say that you know the fact that they've shared a socialist past puts them on a on a, on a you know similar trajectory. In fact, they they uh, obviously uh, turn out to be on a very different trajectory, um, regardless of their shared uh, socialist past. Um, when you look at the Netherlands. Um, and the same goes for a country like Sweden. Uh, some people celebrate Sweden or hold that as sort of the um, the model of what we should be, um, uh, you know, uh, comparing ourselves to or working toward. Both Sweden and the Netherlands are indeed marked by low levels of income inequality. Uh, but when you start looking at wealth inequality, right? So the differences in accumulated. Uh, resources over generations. Ah, so like owning real estate and inheriting yeah. inherited wealth. Exactly, that, that kind of stuff. And that's where both countries actually, um, well, excel at being unequal. And they are just as unequal, if not more unequal, than the United States, for instance, which we, we, we in our public imagination, really sort of is, is often the, the typical reference point as an unequal country. So I'm, I'm telling you that Sweden and the Netherlands on many measures are, are worse than the United States in terms of wealth inequality. So these are places that combine fairly limited differences in people's wages and such, right? Which gives off the impression that it's, you know, these are egalitarian places. But when you start looking into people's generational wealth, uh, you see that people start life from a very different starting point and have, um, some people have a ton of um, sort of backup to fall back on um, a, lot, a lot of support from family and friends and uh, sorry from family and uh, parents and such whereas others completely lack um, such a safety net and and that's where those societies are are truly truly really 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 uh, unequal 
um, even if it's sort of a little bit more hidden. Um, you have to dig a little bit deeper. Uh, so, what metric is the most useful here then? When when you know well, making these I mean, lists. Gini does its job. G- the Gini coefficient, uh, which is sort of a um, uh, mathematical measure that just describes how unequal are certain resources distributed among the population. So a Gini coefficient of one means that one person has all of the money. A, a Gini coefficient of zero means that um, everybody has exactly the same. Uh, so there's no inequality whatsoever. You can apply this uh, separately to the income distribution and the wealth distribution. And that's how you get to two different measures of the kind of inequality that we're talking about. And on those measures, uh, to the best of my understanding, uh, countries like Slovenia, the Netherlands and Sweden do really well in income inequality. So they're fairly equal when it comes to income, the income distribution. Uh, But countries like Sweden and the Netherlands do really poorly when it comes to um, wealth inequality. Okay, so which are one of the, the the places, the countries that are doing the best of both? Um, I'm not sure. I'm I'm really not sure. I mean, I think actually the country or traditionally living, maybe. Yeah, uh, I think the country. Well, traditionally it always was um, Scandinavian countries, um, right? Because of the enormous resources that go into creating public um, safety nets and public goods for everybody to share. Uh, but I, can, I think the case of Sweden is striking in that it, it, it always was one of the most um, uh, equal uh, places income-wise. But even that is changing a lot. In the last 20, 25 years, Sweden has gone from one of the least, least unequal countries in Europe, um, looking at income, to kind of like somewhere in the middle. Um, so, uh, yeah, we're kind of losing... Uh, sources of um, of inspiration. Uh, if anything, the only place sort of in the world where the trend is toward more equality is um, Latin America and uh, South American countries. Uh, that's where we see uh, among most countries, actually, I think Brazil is the exception, but most countries, uh, we see actually a trend toward lower levels of inequality. We also see some um, political leaders uh, emerging in recent years through elections, um, uh, new constitution being written in, in Chile, for instance, and um, that Colombia having its first sort of left wing leader now elected. Uh, so those are kind of the countries that I'd be very curious to follow closely in the, in the upcoming years to see uh, what, um, you know, a, move, a real move, concerted effort toward greater equality actually would look like. Interesting, because according to this index, which we can't take as the golden standard, uh, but on the opposite end, we have countries like South Africa, Namibia, Zimbabwe, but also mm-hmm. Brazil and Colombia that you mentioned as the most unequal countries. Uh, the U- yeah. the US, yeah. I see, is not too far behind there. Is there a common thread that binds these together as well, maybe? Um, yeah, um, complete deregulation, corruption and uh, uh, neoliberalism. Um basically, right? So just letting the market sort of run its ruinous course. Um, That's what we see in big parts of South America. Chile actually was the, a a great example of, um, you know, generations, like a half century of University of Chicago trained economists using it as sort of a experimental proving ground to try to um, um, undo market regulation and, um, let sort of the free market flourish 
um, with all the consequences that that had for people's livelihood and, um, you know, stability, et cetera, et cetera. All I'm saying is that in recent years, the trend in those countries is toward more equality, whereas traditionally more egalitarian countries like Western Europe, Northern Europe, um, uh, even a country like Sweden is trending toward more inequality. Um, so um, um, doesn't mean that their starting point is, is similar, but that's sort of the way we're heading. We live in a time when billionaires are flying into space, while here on Earth we have, I believe, more than 20 million climate refugees every year, and the number keeps growing. We also have people in some of the richest countries on the planet being unable to afford basic medicine and healthcare. Even here in Europe, um, and where we pride ourselves with you know, our welfare states, um, our neighborhoods are getting gentrified before our eyes, making us all mm. poorer by the day. So everywhere we care to look at, inequality is growing and it's growing quite dramatically. Um, why are we so stoic about it? To me, that, that's a conundrum and that's really the starting point for a lot of my research. Um, I think broadly speaking, there are sort of three ways to think about why the public has been so um, stoic, as you put it, um, uh, complacent, uh, but hasn't shown really the kind of... Um, consternation, I guess, or, um, you know, well, we haven't seen revolt, basically, right? Why haven't we seen the people revolt is kind yeah. of the question. So I think the first is that um, people don't know, meaning that, um, yes, you know, maybe we're reading in the press now in the last couple of years about growing levels of inequality, although for a very long time, right? Remember, uh, economic inequality in Europe and in the United States has been growing since the 70s and 80s, right? With sort of the advent of neoliberal policies embodied by people like Reagan in the US, Thatcher in, um, uh, in England, uh, but even like the whole third way uh, new labor uh, movement, that, that also was a huge um, um, motor behind uh, or engine of all forms source of market deregulation, which which exacerbated economic inequality. Um, only recently has there been a lot of reporting on the topic, um, but but even that, um, I think in many cases doesn't um, paint a, a, a fully sort of factual picture of the kind of trends of inequality or the kind of reality of inequality that. Um, that confronts us. Uh, and even if it does, um, of course, we know that news reporting and news consumption um, are, are quite polarized so that some people don't don't trust certain sources and sort of dis distrust of media, of politics, of course. So I think one serious um, and, and, and important part of, of, the, of this sort of puzzle, why there hasn't been more public consternation, is that people's continue to underestimate just how bad it's gotten, um, um, right? But then the question is, okay, there's news reporting. Is there another source of people's uh, underestimation or not, real, not realizing just how, how bad it's gotten? And I think there is, um, um, and that has to do with gentrification, as you mentioned, and other processes that have led rich and poor people to increasingly live their lives in separate institutions, uh, separate neighborhoods, uh, separate schools, separate workplaces, uh, in a way kind of disconnecting them entirely. Uh, if you go back just a few decades, 
uh, it was just much more common for people to uh, date and be friends and, and marry and have children with others from across the income, income spectrum, um, from different levels of education and all of that. And we're seeing in recent decades that there's a big trend toward what's called a, a assortative mating or homogamy, um, homophily, it's sometimes called a network formation. Basically, people's networks uh, are becoming more and more uh, of a um, uh, kind of an echo chamber where we're just seeing other people around. We're gathering other people around us that, that resemble us uh, in, in our level of economic resources, in terms of our educational trajectories and such. Um, and that, I think, means that most people's actual on-the-day experiences with inequality are really quite limited. Um, and that people's immediate reference points, um, you know, are, are reinforcing uh, the idea that they're doing well um, and that also um, our life is um, driven by our actions, by our choices, by our efforts, by our hard work. Um, and uh, that, um, unfortunately, also means that people who don't do well who are facing situations of precarity um, may be to blame for it themselves, right? It may be uh, showing some sort of faults, uh, uh, personal faults, rather than structural uh, issues and systemic uh, problems. So I think there's a there's a very strong belief, public belief in meritocracy, um, which is completely, completely disconnected from the facts. Um, in a way, arguably, it's become more and more disconnected from those facts. But somehow, if you look at the public opinion record, actually believe that we live in a meritocracy uh, is, is, is growing, um, is, is strengthening over time across most countries in the Western world. So, right? so no, to, just, just to wrap up. So we're seeing a, a trend toward greater levels of economic inequality in, in many countries in, in the West, in Western Europe and in the United States, for instance. And, we, and it's coupled, this trend toward more inequality is coupled with uh, stronger beliefs in meritocracy. Meritocracy being this belief that um, we can make our own lives if only we work for it, right? That's that sort of notion. So it seems that the more evidence that we have that inequality around us is growing, the more difficult it is for us to to believe that we're not living in a in a meritocracy. Do we have any idea why is that so difficult for us to accept? Well, I mean, so part of it is just the the evidence is out there, right? The truth is out there. Um, people like uh, well, a lot of colleagues of mine, sociologists, but also economists and other social scientists have have been documenting these these economic trends, these these inequality trends since the nineteen seventies, since it began. Um, and um, their work maybe now recently has gotten attention, right? We have Thomas Piketty's book, uh, which, which of course called attention to the topic and, and was a, 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 was sort of a, a, a surprise bestseller. Um, so there's that, right? But um, uh, I think it's still up for debate whether uh, that kind of, those kind of facts, that kind of reporting uh, really reaches everyone. Um so that's one thing. But the other is, I think, another part of this discrepancy between fact and perception uh, is very much sort of socially grounded in, as I was describing, 
people's experiences, right? So living in a more unequal society tends to mean living um, in a more kind of disconnected state, uh, right? With a greater gap socially, spatially between rich and poor. So that um, people really don't see the other side of the of the divide, right? So in that situation, um, it's also just um, easier for people to convince themselves that no, there aren't major inequalities that need addressing. Uh, there isn't a structural issue. It's just people that need to make better decisions, people that need to work a little bit harder, etc. And that's also, of course, what we hear and we learn from our politicians, right? That's the kind of messaging that comes from most political platforms. Uh, that's the kind of uh, message we get in a ton of um, TV series and, and 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 movies or books uh, that we read. Um, it's 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 really uncommon for uh, for them to tell really good, um, realistic, structural counts of inequality. So um, so much more frequently do we see these kind of rags to riches tales uh, in reality television. Like think about all those game shows or the dragon's den, or um, it's all about, uh, or the voice. Uh, uh, it's, all, it's all about sort of people with amazing talents being discovered and making it in the world. Right. That's the kind of stories that we're bombarded with. Uh, so I think a lot of people just sort of, you know, um, spoon it up and, and, and accept that. Um, as if that was what our reality really uh, looks like. Yeah. Um, there's there's a third part to the question, and that's just that to the extent that people do see inequality and do believe that it's a problem and it's due to structural issues and not to personal failings, um, I think there's a great lack of alternatives, political alternatives, such that people just reconcile themselves with the situation because they cannot even imagine what like a more egalitarian uh, future or society would look like. Uh, that's also partly, you know, that there's not a ton of political platforms that are um, selling us, that are that are um, showing us sort of that way. Um, and, and those that are, are, are very much marginalized. So I think that's another issue, right? It's, it's the, the time of sort of great narratives um, about equality, really, I think are, are 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 kind of past us. Yeah. Young people especially have it incredibly tough. Education doesn't, you know, guarantee any kind of employment anymore except maybe for a few very competitive types of studies. The gig economy is pervasive amongst younger generations who are forced to deliver cat food and toilet paper to older people with more money. Yeah. And on top of that, we have this so-called, I don't know if you're familiar with it, hustle culture being pushed especially online which demands that everybody should become some sort of an entrepreneur and exploit themselves for financial gain even during mm. their free time with so many things stacked against them how can young people break out and see that inequality is not a type of personal failure but something that should be addressed at, at a societal level i mean um i have great hope um uh, in a way it's very it's very uncommon for people very, uh, to really change their beliefs about um, deeply political issues and um, societal problems like inequality. So it's very rare for a person to go from being a, a staunch believer in um, uh, you know their society being fully meritocratic to some, some somehow 
uh, coming to see that that you know that's just not true. Uh, it happens, but it's just not it's not that common. Um, um, a much more meaningful path to real change when it comes to beliefs is simply generational replacement. It's a new generation of people <laughs> growing up with you know economic precarity and not no longer accepting the same sort of political solutions that that have somehow appeased the, the current electorate right so that's i definitely have a lot of um uh, a lot of faith that that is a good uh, plausible and effective path for change simply you know replacing people complicit in this really unequal um, reality with with people who are who are not going to be as likely to be complacent. However, first of all, that takes a while, um, and of course, there is the risk that people will, yeah, kind of incorporate or embody or internalize this hustle culture and um, the celebration of talent. Right? <clears throat> this idea, sorry, this idea that talent is sort of what drives people's success. That um, you know. As long as you have some talent, you can start your own YouTube channel and, and, and become become rich and self-sufficient. And that whole notion, ignoring the enormous uh, infrastructure that's behind it, ignoring um, the inequality in people's ability to actually, uh, you know, whatever, dedicate themselves, foster whatever talent they, they think they have, and ignoring how talent is, is nothing that's set in stone. Talent is something that's defined in particular ways um, um, that's contingent on the society and the time period. And, uh, and that is always and ever um, kind of guarded by important gatekeepers that decide whether your talent deserves a platform, whether your talent deserves a chance. Um, so I'm a little bit worried that, that uh, yeah, people will fail to sort of learn those lessons and, and if that's the case, then um, we're not going to see as much change from generational replacement as I uh, as I'm hopeful of. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm not not a not a quick fix here. I'm sorry. No, all good. Um, I was just I'm just thinking that you know at least I didn't grow up with a cell phone in my hand. At least from what I'm seeing, I'm not a parent, but what I'm seeing on the streets, like they're they're on their phones constantly, and and this is what's being kind of you know proposed to them from dusk till dawn at all times. Yeah. I mean, what sort of a defense can you have as a 10-year-old, you know, being glued to your phone all the time? Yeah, very little. I mean, I think the jury is out on... I mean, I think it's pretty clear that being bombarded with um, uh, unrealistic beauty standards, for instance, uh, kind of depresses people's views of self. Um, I think it's also true that um, the immense sense of competition... Um, that is to some degree kind of the reality of um, or is becoming more and more the reality of, of sort of upper middle class um, families uh, where, yeah, the path of just going to college, university and, and, and then securing a good job is just no longer uh, there for, for many of us, right? So that reality, I think, is, is, um, is definitely behind a enormous, um, you can call it a pandemic of its own right, uh, of anxiety and mental health problems among um, children. I see it here in the United States in particular. Um, 
just the enormity of pressure that's on young people uh, under, you know, that they carry on their shoulders uh, is sometimes completely uh, debilitating. And I don't think that social media uh, do a terrific job of uh, alleviating any of that pressure. In fact, I think a lot of it is piling on. So that's where I'm, um, that's where I'm definitely, sh- I share your concerns. At the same time, I do think that there's a lot that can be done in um, things like addressing misinformation online. There's, there's, there's been some successful interventions there. Uh, there's a lot of sort of uh, savvy and know-how that uh, kids uh, can and do develop in telling apart, you know, um, uh, you know, basically kind of navigating the complexity of social media. I mean, think about how older generations are so susceptible to phishing attempts and such, um, where younger generations just instantaneously see that that's not something you need to, you know, that's not a link you want to click on, for instance. So I think there's a lot of tech savvy with very, very young children already, um, that um, together with parental guidance and supervision uh, could probably um, dampen all of those negative effects of social media. Um, so I think there's there's definitely that. But I do think it's something that needs to be addressed and regulated. It's really hard to think of, uh, indeed, um, being bombarded by all of that for 12 hours a day without any kind of filters having any good impact on people. Oh, yeah. the, the, the bit that you said uh, how older generations are getting scammed, I'm personally terrified for myself, you know, because technology is advancing so fast that by the time mm-hmm. when I get older, I think I'm going to get scammed from the last ounce of flour that I own uh, <laughs> by the time that I'm like 60 years old. So uh, that's a terrifying prospect. But anyway... Um, staying with technology for a little bit, yeah. you mentioned segregated realities already a little bit. Mm-hmm. Instead of bringing us together, it seems that technology is locking us in smaller and smaller bubbles um, of common interests, binding us mostly to people that are, that are like us. Is there still a way to reverse that or are we in too deep with all the social media now? No, I mean, I think it's, I think it's pretty clear that, you know, what started as sort of a very much sort of hippie movement of um, putting computers equipped with the internet, I mean, meaning a modem, um, in the 1960s in, um, you know, Berkeley, for instance, uh, just on the street so that people could use it. Um, I mean, it was meant as a way of allowing people to find um, kinship and shared interests from sort of around the globe uh, to create community, right? Um, I think there were always fears that, online communities would erode offline communities. And some of those fears are, some of those fears are, are, you know, have something to it. I'm not sure whether it's that simple. Uh, I I can think of many situations where you can have both or one can actually strengthen the other. But yeah, that that whole idealistic project has definitely devolved into something completely different, right? Where the attention economy uh, that we're confronted with online now is just something completely different than, the kind of community building that that it was designed to be. Um, at the same time, um, despite all the polarization and echo chambers online that have been documented and researched, um, it tends to be that our offline echo chambers are even worse. Um, meaning that, um, for instance, in the United States, where politics is so polarized, um, people are more likely to encounter contrarian opinions uh, get different viewpoints um, online than they are to get in their own networks. 
their own friend groups of friends and family, etc. So in that sense, um, it's not great. Uh, and there is a lot of polarization in echo chambers, etc. online. But um, it, it still seems to um, broaden rather than narrow people's horizon, um, um, uh, you know, compared to the situation where there would be they could only rely on what they hear from from people around them. Do we have any idea what happens to societies when they let inequality go unchecked historically? Um, not to be too dramatic, yeah. although I, I do love a little bit of drama. Uh, but I read an article a while back which made the argument that a lot of civilizations and empires in the past collapsed because the ruling classes just couldn't understand you know, any of the problems of common people anymore. They were so far apart. Uh, and it seems we are getting pretty close to those levels today. Is there a lesson on inequality to be learned in history or is that a gross exaggeration? Well, it's a bit of a, it's sort of the good old, eat, uh, why don't the poor eat the rich question? Um, that's very much, you know, related to the question that we previously pursued. I think, unfortunately, you know, well, I say unfortunately, but uh, let me stay neutral in this matter. I think um, that scenario is a little bit less plausible than it seems intuitively. Um, I think just like, you know, um, Karl Marx's predictions of a communist uh, revolution um, was based on the assumption that capitalism would just go awry and um, people would literally uh, have no, um, no, no, you know, nothing to stand on anymore and uh, would be dying on the street, etc. I think capitalist societies have found very clever ways of navigating um, uh, kind of towing that line um, to keep people needy and ready for exploitation and in precarious situations, but don't not to drive them to despair, um, right? So we see as a direct um, political response to um, communist revolutions and communist and socialist movements more generally, um, you know, in the 19th century uh, and before, we see, you know, the 40-hour work week. Uh, we see prohibition of child labor. Uh, we see uh, mandatory, um, you know, sick days and such, right? So there's like these really marginal improvements that seem to have effectively taken the sting out of things and uh, kind of proven to be a very effective sedative to that kind of public sentiment of eat the rich. So um, you were pointing to Latin American countries as being marked by particular great levels of, of, of income inequality. Um, and that's absolutely true. But like I said, in those countries, we're seeing uh, actually a downward trend toward, toward more economic equality in, in recent decades. Uh, so, so again, indicative um, that these societies find some way of doing just enough to keep that full-blown public revolt from happening. Although you could argue that what happened in Chile was in some way a real people's revolt, right? We had millions of people marching for a full year uh, and demanding the re rewriting of the constitution, right? So that's that's very significant, I would say. And the country's trajectory with, with the new president there um, has, um, it's Boric, uh, has, has really gone 
put on a different trajectory, right? So that arguably that is a very meaningful change, and we we'll have to see uh, in the next years what's um, what's what's going to happen there. But yeah, like I said, I'm a little bit skeptical or cynical um, because I think that yeah, um, capitalist systems and our our you know um, liberal democracies have found ways to kind of uh, toe that line effectively so that um, a real, real kind of revolt and uprising doesn't really happen. I believe, maybe erroneously, that one of the reasons why we have difficulties in acknowledging inequality is, of course, the ideology of the American dream underpinning, yeah. you know, all of it, which has, of course, gone global a long time ago. Uh, yeah. So the belief that with enough hard work, anybody can make it to the top. You're from the Netherlands, but you've been teaching in the U.S., as we've heard, for a while. Is that dream still shining as bright as ever there, mm. or are there any cracks visible? Yeah, there are certainly cracks visible. I mean, um, you know, of course, the most, most students I see are students in sociology, uh, meaning that there's some self-selection uh, there, of course. I, I don't get to speak to uh, too many students who... Um, by virtue of their um, their major, are are uh, you know on a very different trajectory. Uh, but you know, I've had a fair amount of economics students and physics students and engineers and such in my classrooms as well over the years now. Um, and um, I do think that 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 belief uh, in meritocracy um, is definitely a lot a lot more nuanced and a lot more under a lot more tension. Um, now, that said, um, even though that's my experience, when I look at the survey evidence, um, I'm not seeing that translate to a real generational change. There are some signs that young people today are just more critical of the American dream and such, but it's not translating to the aggregate when you look at um, uh, these long-term survey waves. Uh, if anything, uh, believe in meritocracy seems to be strengthening, right? And and I think believe in meritocracy and believe in the American dream are are, are very very similar, share a lot of features. So I think that what has changed is people's perception of their economic reality and a changed perspective on what is required to achieve some sense of economic stability, right? So I think people realize now that just going to college is not... So in that sense, the, the good old American dream of doing okay in school or getting a union job and then, you know, buying your suburban home with picketed fence and et cetera, that idea, that version of the American dream is definitely uh, gone, right? I think a lot of people don't believe in that anymore. Um, but do they really um, have they stopped believing that through hard work, effort, and talent, you could, you know, uh, you could achieve your dreams? That's where I think people still have a lot of, um, you know, unfortunately sometimes naive uh, belief that um, you know maybe the structural reality is such, but they, with their hard work, with their talents, can be the exception to the rule, um, and that's. Um, yeah, that's uh, that's that's sometimes painful because we know, statistically speaking, that uh, current generations of Americans have about a 50-50 chance of doing better than their parents, economically speaking. So one out of two, um, um, you know, Americans in this sort of generation is going to experience downward mobility. 
uh, right? If you look at the baby boomers, for the baby boomers, it was 90% end up doing better than their parents, right? So we see uh, in that sense, the American dream has, has completely collapsed. Um, but, um, but I'm not sure if, if that's what people, how people experience it on the ground, unfortunately. That famous John Steinbeck quote comes to mind. Socialism never took root in America because the poor see themselves not as an exploited class, but as temporarily embarrassed millionaires. So yeah, yeah, that rings true to this day, but probably globally, not just for the US. I, I do think, that if, yeah, so right, sort of the definitely the um, cultural impact of American um, uh, entertainment industry uh, and political narratives, etc., has has far, far, far wider reach. Um, so that's that's a big part of that for sure. But there's also a really strong psychological need for people to indeed, particularly when they find themselves um, down and out, to believe that in the future, somewhere down the line, um, you know, good things will happen to good people or, you know, I'll finally, I'll somehow, uh, eventually I'll be rewarded. Karma, right? We have all these different notions that, um, that, that tell us that um, uh, we just need to, we just need to work uh, and keep trying and uh, do good uh, and we will be rewarded. But unfortunately that just simply is not the case. For <laughs> In my else. next life, I'm going to be Jeff Bezos. Finally. That could be true. I have no way of testing that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we've been running a little bit of a gloomy diagnostics because honestly, things don't look so good. But what's the way out of of the predicament of inequality? Um, is it the the way that the Latin countries went, like you mentioned, or is it doing this sort of patchwork, you know, 40 hour mm-hmm. week, like uh, a lot of European countries did in the past? Or is there like a more systemic radical change needed? Well, I'll say a little bit more about that in a moment. I think the first things that we could uh, definitely make an effort is um, first the realm of information, right? So uh, eradicating misinformation, putting our you know notes and nuances in those meritocratic American dream tales, um, offering counter narratives uh, to such uh, to such narratives. I think that's that's all really important, and that's where um, I hope to be doing some of the work. As an, as an academic, uh, I know that there's uh, a lot of, um, you know, recent attention to this topic in, in podcasts like this. But um, in my home country, the Netherlands, there's been uh, really a series of, of great documentaries and, and sort of books written for a general audience that are addressing uh, these, these topics. In the United States, we had uh, this book, The Tyranny of Meritocracy by uh, Michael Sandel was a bestseller. It actually, it's an international bestseller. We had the meritocracy trap. Um, written by a Yale professor. And there's, there's sort of, there's an, definitely a, a lot of counter narratives out there now. And I think that's extremely important. Uh, I also think that there's, um, right, there's, there's more interventions to be done uh, in, like I said, countering misinformation online. Um, so making sure that at least we can have a public conversation about these topics that um, starts out from the facts and not from people's perceptions, which we know are um, um, often very much disconnected from reality. I think that's the first thing that we can still make make big uh, steps. The second thing is is going to require deeper interventions, and that is to um, really address this uh, increasing disconnect between rich and poor when it comes to social spaces, 
social networks. Um, and that's where, you know, making a real effort to uh, integrate, uh, economically speaking, neighborhoods, um, um, schools, even workplaces, to invest in public spaces uh, where people can can encounter, uh, get to know um, each other, right? So a reversal of the austerity measures that have really, I think, um, undermined a lot of public resources and a reinvestment in those places, uh, in those institutions, I think is is going to do a lot of good, not just in the services provided, but also in creating these meeting grounds from which we can have stronger bonds, more solidarity, a better understanding, and uh, just a greater awareness of what kind of society we're living in and what people at each side of that economic divide, you know, what their lives look like, right? So I think that's, that's really, really important. And that's where uh, government and social policy can, can, can accomplish a lot, right? It, it just needs to be accepted as, as an, an actual policy concern in the first place. Um, now, you know, if all my advice is taken, then I think we're, we're going to get um, a political conversation that, uh, again, starts from the facts and that is rooted in people's actual experiences and that is likely to desire uh, or lead to a desire for greater equality and more redistribution. Then it becomes a matter of, do we have the institutions in place so that public opinion and public the public will will actually become political and material reality? And I think that's where there's a lot of distortions in a lot of our political systems that don't uh, allow uh, broadly shared wants and desires to to make it uh, to the policy, to really inform the, the political agenda. Um, it's been documented in the United States, been documented across Western countries as well, I mean, uh, Western European countries as well. A lot of politics follows the, the opinion of elites, uh, but not the opinion of the broader population. A lot of political decisions correlate very strongly with political interest groups and lobbies and, and, and corporations, but uh, almost doesn't correlate at all with, with general trends in popular opinion, right? So there's a real disconnect as well between political elites and, and people. And that's where we may need to uh, make some political, um, you know, transform our political institutions to actually have that direct translation between what people want and uh, what we can make reality through our political institutions. Uh, that's where a lot of work still still needs to be done, and that's going to be that's going to be a challenge. But then, yeah, then we get to the last bit, right? We have we have the the, the knowledge, we have the the desire, and we have the political sort of will. Uh, and then I think we we need to have a clear vision of what equality actually is. We talk about inequality all the time, but what is equality? What does that look like? Um, are we talking about, right, there's a false distinction between equality of opportunity and equality of outcome. Those things are not disconnected. They're, they're fully integrated, those two things, right? But, but how much uh, equality do we want and how much inequality do we tolerate? I think that's the kind of conversation that uh, is only just beginning. I mean, it's, it's been, of course, debated in, in, in philosophy for, 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 um, for centuries or centuries, but I think we need to have a public conversation about these matters, too. So there's been some really interesting research recently um, by colleagues of mine, both in, in London and in the Netherlands, where they've tried to document 
you know, we're all familiar with this concept of a poverty line, right? Some sort of um, some sort of point below which just life is impossible, right? But should there perhaps be a riches line, right? Should there perhaps be a point at which we just don't accept uh, people to have more resources than that, right? And where would we put that? In the Netherlands, interestingly, um, people arrived at a limit of about, I think it was about 3 million euros. Uh, basically, like you can have a second house, you can have a nice car, but when you get a second house, a nice car, and a pool, that's where we that's where we draw the limit. <laughs> uh, so, but but just to say that there's there seems to be an intuitive sense in which people are willing to say enough is enough, um, and um, that's the kind of conversation we need to be having, and that's the kind of uh, difficult questions that I think we need to resolve so that we can actually make steps toward designing that. Uh, that more uh, egalitarian and equal society that we want, right? But we first need to have a vision for it. Yeah. In the era of fake news, it seems very difficult to have these conversations because as soon as you mention something along those lines, like uh, the what did you call it, the richest line, yeah, the richest, richest line, line yeah. you hear, oh, Stalinism is coming. They're coming to yeah. take your, they're coming to take your hard-earned uh, dineros from you. Yeah. So um, in these kind of circumstances it's really difficult to have any sort of a meaningful dialogue in the public sphere no it is and and but again i think it's it's it it is intrinsically it's a problem of imagination it's a lack of imagination right um uh, as you said like our first thought or not mine maybe probably not yours either but for a lot of people the first thought is communism or stalinism um maoism is a little bit less familiar in our context but Right there's these extremes and these historical realities of complete totalitarian regimes um, that we have somehow equated with communism, whereas the two are completely distinct, of course. Uh, but it's that historical trauma um, of living in those societies, marked by totalitarianism, by uh, corruption, um, that actually has, I think, fueled a lot of neoliberal politics, such that. Uh, Slovenia uh, is is an exception, but many post-socialist countries are actually becoming more and more unequal, uh, having elected very right-wing pro-market leaders in uh, a completely understandable, uh, but I, I would say um, pretty tragic, um, kind of a, attempt to reject that their and, and deal with their historical trauma, but at the same time, you know, make political choices that put them. Um, you know, in in a in a extremely suboptimal situation. Uh, so again, right? We need to have a, a sense of what. Um, so, for instance, democratic socialism, right, is is, is becoming uh, is is getting some traction. Uh, so that's one way to actually visualize and make concrete what we could be striving for uh, to, right? And I think we need more. We need more uh, alternatives, but they need to be. Uh, they need to be fairly concrete sort of visualizations of our imagination so that we can move away from those scary, almost tropes um, like Stalinism and such, as if that were the only solution, the only alternative to capitalism, right? Um, since you threw down the gauntlet, I'm going to throw it right back. What would equality look like? Or what is equality to you? Yeah, yeah. Um, 
I mean, okay. So first of all, cop out. I think it's up for a public conversation. Every community should have like their say and vote on that. I'm not going to dictate what what equality should mean, but I guess there's a couple of sociological and philosophical sort of um, elements that go into it uh, that I think are uh, very reasonable. Um, one is um, make a distinction between difference and inequality, right? So I don't think people want to live in a society where there's no difference. Uh, we are all different. We have different tastes and preferences and and traits and uh, biologies. Um so working toward a system where that is celebrated um, and doesn't translate into inequalities, right? So, um, um, I mean, I think that that could entail that we still distinguish people for accomplishments in arts, in science, uh, or even in the marketplace. Um, but uh, I think we need to rethink what the consequences of, of sort of winning and success look like. So... In the United States, the reality has become that when you are a winner uh, in the market, uh, you are also uh, more able to secure solid housing, get better opportunities for um, education, for instance, for your children, have more um, better health and safety, right? But I think disconnecting and disentangling those things altogether, I think, is a very good starting point so that we can define a set of public goods that we want to be available to everyone, and um, and and we decouple those from whatever success and winning looks like, without having to uh, kind of create some sort of weirdly uniform uh, society where everybody is the same, right? I think we we could have all sorts of competitions and all sorts of you know particular pursuits um, as long as they don't translate into you know, rooted and inherited inequalities. Um, there's a lot to be done in terms of rethinking ownership, public ownership. There's There's been interesting suggestions about um, uh, basically sh- um, giving people shares or or sort of coupons that, that give them an owner stake, an ownership stake in, uh, in, in, in uh, a national or nationalized companies. Um, but I think it, it, there's many forms. I don't think there's one solution. Um, I think we can probably define a couple of sort of premises and from there uh, work out uh, what the most practical uh, manifestation of that would look like. And uh, I'd be very surprised if we wouldn't see different solutions in different contexts for different communities. And that should be absolutely fine too. Um, coupled, of course, in my ideal world, with the freedom to settle and locate wherever you want on the planet uh, so that we don't have borders uh, keeping people out and, uh, you know, protecting people's particular interests. Uh, but we can have a, a, a real freedom to to choose and, and be and live uh, wherever you are. But, but yeah, a rethinking of what are public goods and a rethinking of what are private responsibilities. I think that's the very first thing uh, to do. The name of this podcast is Eurotrash, which means I have to ask you something a little bit more trashy at the end. Mm. Um, you said that to break down inequality, I believe you said that in your TEDx talk, which I recommend everybody to see. Yeah, You said that to break down inequality, we have to think about personal choices in our everyday lives as well, right? Uh, we need to yeah. try to escape the confines of our spaces and social networks and interact with people who are different from us. Yeah. Here comes the question. 
if you are an all-powerful producer for a reality TV show, what kinds of people would you put together and what would they have to achieve? Would it be like a survivor type thing, a big brother yeah. setting, a romance show, you know, or something completely else? And from which walks of life would these participants yeah. come from? I mean, I think one of the problems currently that's propping up this idea of the American dream and meritocracy, etc., is is all those reality shows that have a competitive <laughs> yeah, element. That I love to it. watch, by the way. Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't hate them either. I, I watch a lot of trashy TV um, here, like here on Netflix. What is it? Selling Sunset about a bunch of bimbo real estate um, agents. <laughs> okay, um, uh, that's a, that, okay. I'll, I'll definitely yeah, watch that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. very I've, I've, been, I've been watching Love is Blind recently. Uh, oh, yeah. But, yeah, that, but was... that, that, that one seems even better. The Love and Blind is interesting, the cultural differences, right? There's been Love and Blind, uh, Love is Japan. Blind now in so many countries. Yeah, yep. the Japanese and the American, it's really stark just how different they are, um, where things fall apart and how people present and how they uh, engage with each other. It's very, very, very interesting. Um, I mean, I think there's something really beautiful about the premise of Love is Blind. And um, I think there's a lot of potential in Indeed uh, bringing people together that otherwise wouldn't meet. Um, so yeah, I guess my go-to would be romance as as the the, the real life uh, or you know sort of show uh, of, of choice. I mean, I just don't see competitive shows to do any good uh, in the world, really, other than perhaps provide entertainment. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, this was incredibly illuminating. Uh, Thank you for taking the time. What's the easiest way for people to discover your your work? Oh, yeah. So I try to put it all together on my website. So if you go to jonathanmais.com, you'll find it all there, including um, like interviews and podcasts like this, this where where I feature. Um, But otherwise, yeah, feel free to get in touch. My email is is on there. Uh, I'm always happy to engage with people who are interested in these kind of topics. Um, So, yeah. And it's been a pleasure to be on the to be on your show. Again, thank you so much for for accepting the invite and all the best to Ajax, of course. Thank you. That's uh, that what that's what matters most dearly to me these days. Yeah. <laughs>